0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today, I'm welcoming back David Lester and Marcus Redeker to the New Books Network. Uh, they're here to speak about their latest book, Under the Banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic, a graphic novel, published by Beacon Press in 2023. David Lesser is an author and graphic artist. He, his work includes, but is not limited to, 1919, A Graphic History of the Winnipeg General Strike, Direct Action Gets the Goods, A Graphic History of the Strike in Canada, Drawn to Change, Graphic Histories of the Working Class Struggle, and The Listener, a graphic novel. He's also the guitarist for a duo in Vancouver, Mechanormal Normal, and I made the joke last time, and it, st- it, it still stands that he's a lot cooler than me. Uh, Marcus Rediker, a scholar of piracy and slavery, is a distinguished professor of Atlantic history at the University of Pittsburgh. He is the author of numerous books on the history of piracy, the slave trade in the Atlantic world, such as The Many-Headed Hydra, The Slave Ship, A Human History, Villains of All Nations, Outlaws of the Atlantic, The Amistad, and The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. And he's turned the story of the mighty Benjamin Lay into a stage play uh, recently. Last year, I had the pleasure of speaking with both David and Marcus about their book, Prophet Against Slavery, Benjamin Lay, a graphic novel, also published by Beacon Press in 2021. Under the banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic, a graphic novel, I think that'll be the last time I give the full title, um, uh, is a comic adaptation of Rediker's now classic 2004 Villains of All Nations, Atlantic Pirates uh, in the Golden Age, really one of the foundational texts in serious pirate studies. Uh, David Lester, Marcus Rediker, David and Marcus, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank hey, you,
1: Mike. Good good to be back with you again.
2: Yeah. So, um, David, before we get into Under the Banner of King Death, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I asked you this question last time, but let me ask it again. Um, how did you become a graphic historian?
3: <laughs> Well, one has to go back to the childhood of, of oneself, <laughs> and uh, you know, I I grew up. I loved drawing, and uh, and I loved comics. And uh, one of my favorites was Classics Illustrated, which um, told many stories of history. And uh, my interest in drawing led me to go to the library and take out books on art history, where I discovered a thing called history paintings. And um, when I was a teenager, about fifteen, I did a monthly. Uh, comic for a youth liberation publication out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, called FPS, and it was to uh, take uh, historical figures and quotes uh, that they had on on education, on uh, youth growing up, uh, on the dynamic of parents and children, and uh, and so so there there I was right away as a teen linking art um, art history and and uh, in my view politics. And from there, I took a, diverge, a diverged into graphic design and music for a long time. And then I started a poster series called Inspired Agitators, which featured historical figures who were activists or, or radicals, or, or at a moment in time, they did something extraordinary. And uh, from there, I created my first graphic novel called The Listener, which concerned the rise of the Nazi party and Hitler during the Weimar years. And that led uh, me to meet up with the Graphic History Collective, where I worked on, as you mentioned, several books on, um, on, on labor history, uh, particularly 1919, a graphic history of the Winnipeg General Strike. And that led me to, um, to working with um, Marcus and Paul. And uh, Paul had been involved in, as we were talking off air, in so many projects that relate to history and graphic novels. And he he was very much involved with the Graphic History Collective in guiding them and uh, editorially working with them. And so it was that connection um, with him that led me to, again, working on, on these projects uh, to, to currently the book that we're talking about today, Under the Banner of King Death.
2: Mm-hmm. And so so much of your work focuses on the history of labor activism and your your collaborations with Marcus definitely um uh are are doing history in the vein of social justice. Um do you see your graphic uh work as a contribution to various struggles?
3: Well, again, I have to look at it, you know, from a personal um perspective and a personal history that my grandfather was a member of the industrial workers of the world which was uh, founded in america in the early part of the 20th century it's a uh, uh, was a revolutionary radical syndicalist union and um so if we fast forward 70 years to uh me and my brother living in grandpa's house and he had died and and um at the time we uh had invited a speaker from the CNT in Spain, the Confederation National Trade Unions, which is not unlike the industrial workers of the world being kind of a a syndicalist, kind of more veering towards an anarchist type of union. And uh, they had just been legalized after the end of the dictatorship in the seventies in Spain. And we were part of a group that brought a member over to tell us on speaking tour to tell people what was going on in Spain at the time. And he stayed at my house. And 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 so after the speech and the next morning, I I got up and got my coffee and walked into the living room. And there he was um, sitting in grandpa's lazy lazy boy chair. And it was in that moment that I I thought, okay, there's the thread of history from, you know, the guy who was in the Industrial Workers of the World. That's his chair to the guy in the CNT uh, and and their long um, history. um, And then it's up to, you know, virtually the present day. And then that leads me back to going 300 years uh to our book that we're uh, discussing today and uh, i see the thread of it all to be with worker to do with workers rights workers history labor history and um and people trying to make a better world and um and so the thread there you know that that that, that is the uh, the the importance of the linkage of all that and uh but i see that graphic novels are to me an important part of activist art the future of activist art and it's particularly important in education as i see more and more teachers of history using graphic novels in that process and that the uh the role that they play is is quite significant because the the students are the future uh voters the future uh labor leaders the future activists and um and so the role of graphic novels is is very important as a form um and then combine it with with our depiction of what i would call you know social justice history or radical history and so so there's the role that graphic novels can play and the role that we can play as makers of graphic novels
2: yeah yeah that's fantastic and and um I think there's always a little bit of a slightly subversive element to the graphic genre I mean maybe maybe it's just the stuff I read but uh you know I um you know somewhat left of center I mean Doonesbury' as a kid I was a precocious kid reading Doonesbury right and like the I mean this is like at I don't know age probably seven or eight I learned about uh the American War in Vietnam and and so forth and and um and then think about you know Mad mag magazine this is cultural Subversive act, and then um, I think it was, was it Rios's um uh Cuba for Beginners, that um from the seventies or eighties that like, as again as a precocious kid, you know probably middle school or high schooler, got me to realize oh comics can uh, have have a serious uh can be can be the serious medium.
3: Well, they, um, they, um, they um, you know, I, I grew up also reading underground comics, and uh, and so the subversiveness of them. It, some of them may not have been particularly uh, political, but they, they certainly artistically were quite subversive. And of course, you mentioned Mad Magazine. I read that all the time, and and there was a subversiveness to that, um, which you didn't find in other mass media. And, uh, and so comics have played this role that I think even going back 300 years to uh, people like Gilroy, who satirized the, the, the ruling classes um, and even Hogarth at times. And, uh, and so I think there's been a long tradition of that, including editorial cartoonists, which you don't see so much today. They're, they're quite soft now, but they're, the editorial cartoons in the newspapers used to be very biting. And I, I devoured those as well and not to mention the great ron cobb who did an uh, uh, editorial cartoon in many of the underground newspapers in the in the 60s 70s um, and uh, you know he's not alone in 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 that process so i feel comics are it, it are are connected very much with with uh, radicalism and the subversive nature of of combining words and text i mean words and art i should say
2: Right. Um, And Marcus, um, could you tell us a bit about your career trajectory and how you came to be a scholar of uh, pirate ships and the slave trade?
1: Well, Mike, my uh, career trajectory uh, early on was to become a basketball player in the NBA. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Is uh, this breaking news?
0: Is this breaking news? Did we get a new
1: book's history scoop? Yeah, this is a, this is a scoop. Actually, most anybody who knows me knows that I've loved the game for a long time and still do. But I played in high school. I played in college. And then I discovered that uh, there was really a serious problem with this career plan that I wasn't a good enough basketball player to play in the NBA. So here I am working in a factory. I dropped out of school, 1971. I'm working in a factory taking night classes. And uh, I meet a professor named Alan Briceland at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm going to night classes. And uh, he basically shows me that becoming a historian is an option. Uh, I grew up in a working class family. I didn't know it was an option, frankly, that one could make uh, a life around being a historian. So to make a long story short, when I went off uh, eventually to graduate school, I was going to become a historian of slavery uh, in the Caribbean uh, especially and in North America. But when I got to graduate school, I, I wrote a first seminar paper on pirates. And I was hooked. So at that point, I wrote a dissertation about uh, sailors and pirates in the 18th century. And then as I moved through subsequent research projects, I came back around to the question of slavery. Um, And eventually, what I wanted to do was to take some of this history from below. And I think that's how I would describe not only uh, my work, but the work David and I are doing, uh, graphic history from below, uh, I wanted to reach uh, new readers, uh, and especially younger readers. So I teamed up with Paul Buell, uh, he made the the connection to David, and uh, two graphic novels later, with a third in process, uh, here we are. So that's how it happened. Fantastic.
2: Um, so what, what what was it? like sort of being on the, you know, the pioneer of serious pirate studies. Um, um, I had had, I mean, I know, I know that there are popular histories, right? But I mean, um, and this isn't my area of historical expertise, but my understanding is like, you're really the pioneer and really established this as a field. I mean, was there some pushback? Was, I mean, I'm, I'm very curious about that.
1: Yeah. It, it's actually true that when I started working on sailors and pirates it's now 40-odd years ago, Um, neither one of them uh, were subjects of serious scholarly work. In fact, uh, labor historians didn't even consider sailors part of labor history because they didn't produce commodities. Uh, Labor history then was completely defined by industrial, male industrial workers. So, this was uh, kind of an interesting issue. So, I had to fight for that, and uh, and the same was true of pirates. I mean, some people thought that this was kind of a silly subject, right? That it was a, a romantic uh, thing, and that and there were some, you know, amateur historians who were very good. Yeah. Yeah. There were some good amateur histories uh, of piracy, but but then some other people started working on it, and and then some really good work was done. And now, uh, I mean, on my desk behind me, I've got three new works of history. Uh, coming out about piracy. Lots of people are working on it now. So there has been a very big change.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, um I know that there's a, a recently published book uh posthumously by um is it uh uh David Graber's um David Graber right. uh, Pirate I, enlightenment I, I think yeah. you, I, I read your review of it. Right. And um um I mean it's just it's it's, it's the, the field's in a level of sophistication now that yeah. um um that you know is is quite admirable. So um So, Under the Banner of King Death is drawn from uh, villains of all nations. Um, Can you describe the process of uh, what you wanted to pull, uh, how how you went about pulling out this graphic history, really graphic novel from this
1: longer, uh, more conventional prose text? Right. This, this, this is kind of a dilemma because uh, Villains of All Nations is a, is a social portrait mm-hmm. of an entire generation of pirates, and it's not a single storyline. But as it happens, or happened, I should say, in the past, I had been contacted uh, years ago by uh, an L.A. film producer. And he said, let's make a film, the first historically authentic film about pirates. Uh, he said, let's write a treatment. And I was so naive, I said, uh, great, what's a treatment? And so this is basically the, the storyline, right? The this story is a,
2: psychoanalysis. You're in, you're in treatment,
1: <laughs> right? So, so I went back to Villains of All Nations and decided that I would try to translate this into a single narrative with a particular arc. Uh, and I had a lot of trouble writing it until... I decided to create some characters, and then put the story in motion and follow out what happened according to those, those historical characters as I had studied them and as I now imagined them. Well, to make a long story short, that film never got made, although Lionsgate did take uh, an option on the book and put it through the process of development. we We actually have a a very good two hour screenplay uh, about the book, but it it just never happened. so so you you didn't write Pirates of the Caribbean. No, in fact, that was a very big problem for us because (laughs) Pirates of the Caribbean was quite popular at this time, and they drowned out practically everything else. But once that thing had run its course, we did find people who were receptive to more historically accurate uh depiction of pirates. And by the way, I, I took my children to see Pirates of the Caribbean and, and their attitude afterward was never take a historian of piracy to see a pirate film because <laughs> <laughs> all, all they do is complain about the inaccuracies and how silly it looks on the screen. But that but that was okay. Yeah.
2: I, I, I remember one scene from I don't know what, what the like 15 of those uh Johnny Depp films now. But um I remember there's one scene where they're showing um, this colonial map of the world and Africa is filled in with the rivers filled in. And I was in the theater yelling, they didn't know where the Congo went. Like, this is an <laughs> yeah, right. abomination.
1: Right. Yeah. So just to finish my yeah. answer to your question, Mike, uh, when David and I decided that we wanted to produce a graphic novel, we went back to that treatment. And I worked on it some more. We adapted it. Uh, David and I worked on it. He translated it into a, a set of scenes. So we already had the storyline from a previous project, and that proved to be uh, uh, the basis of the new book. So are, are the characters
2: composite characters of individuals that you found in your historical research? Um, you know, the, uh, there's, there's a character who's uh, formerly enslaved. Uh, there's right. a character who's a woman who's um, passing as a, as a male pirate and then reveals herself uh, towards the end. Um, are these, are these
1: all drawn from individuals that you have studied? Yes, they all have uh, real analogs in the historical record. Uh, Mary or Mark Reed uh, is based on a a real person, a woman who dressed as a man and went to sea. Uh, That that character is based on one specific person. The other two main characters, John Gwynn, a man who escaped from a plantation in South Carolina, became a pirate and a Dutch sailor named uh, Ruby Decker they're they are kind of a composite of a bunch of different people that I had studied so so that's the way we created those characters
2: and the the story arc of the um the mutiny on the ship and the ship going uh breaking bad uh going going to piracy and then um, attacking a um a slave fort in on the west right. coast of Africa this is drawn from historical record
1: yes yes it is.
2: Yeah, no. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the way that you built that story is just so, so engaging. Um, got one, one other pirate question to ask you. Um, uh, what, what is the pirate's favorite letter?
1: <laughs> I'm not gonna say it, by,
2: but you can uh, say it, David. Say it. Set me up. What's the pirate's favorite letter?
3: No, you do it. You do it.
2: No, tis the sea they love.
1: <laughs> oh okay okay so it okay, really so, was a, it really was a setup it was a setup <laughs> yeah and I've been,
2: my wife was telling me do not tell that joke but uh <laughs> <laughs> it works every time okay so um you know we um marcus we uh unfortunately we at the recent american historical association meeting in philadelphia we were scheduled at the same time so i couldn't um attend your paper um, but I know you spoke about graphic novels in history, and I'm curious as to what you brought to the AHA. What did you want to tell the AHA audience about uh, graphic novels and, and graphic history?
1: Well, uh, there are a lot of people who are curious about how do you do it? <laughs> how do you turn a serious history into a graphic novel? So I had one very clear piece of advice for them. Find a great artist like David Lester, and then it gets really easy from there. <laughs> it's it's true. I, I worked with Liz Clark, and I, yeah, it's it's really the artists who do the work. <laughs> it's true, and uh, but but basically, what I I talked about was the process that David and I went through in in writing these two books, how we we've gone back and forth, and uh, wh- what that looked like, how how graphic novels happened. Uh, in our case. Uh, so, yeah, but I was kind of fascinated. Apparently the AHA, the American Historical Association, has a very serious project underway on graphic novels, taking them much more seriously than that uh, conservative institution has done in the past. And there were people on our panel who were not graphic novelists, but who study it. Mm-hmm. So there's serious work going on, not only in creating the novels, but in scholarship about cultural form
2: yeah i know that uh trevor gets uh author of, of right. the important man um um you know out with oxford oh, well over a decade ago right. um you know really an- another pioneer pioneer um he was i think he's been doing a lot of work behind the scenes making this happen he organized a, that special issue of the american historical review um a few years ago devoted to graphic histories and um and taking them seriously, it's 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 nice to see. Um, yes, that that institution, opening up <laughs> yes. and becoming uh, <laughs> a bit more, um, a bit more, uh, well, open. Um, David, so how how did you come into this project? Um, I mean, this is the second time you've you've worked with Marcus. Um, but how did you come into this project and uh, go about adapting this into um a graphic history? I mean, your what, what's your perspective on the process? I, I guess is the question.
3: Well, I mean, uh, how, how did I get involved? Uh, again, we've touched on it a bit, but it was through doing 1919 uh, uh, Graphic History of the Winnipeg General Strike. And that and I did that under extraordinarily difficult situation of creating a 93-page book in 53 days. And after that, I thought I'd take a break. But then this guy, Paul Buell, emailed me about this other project, about some guy named Benjamin Lay. And so uh, that um, that started this process of working with paul and marcus and uh and uh you know it, it, it because it went so well in terms of creating the book profit against slavery um that we we decided to work together again and it's really like uh not unlike uh uh having a rock band and you really need mm-hmm. the the uh, the the gel there to uh to th- that it work that you collaborate together very well and i think the three of us mm-hmm. do and so you don't always get that. Some say rock band may have great musicians, but, uh, it doesn't mean it's going to work well. And it really has to do with, uh, how people treat each other, how, how, how people want to, uh, see, uh, a project develop and move along at a smooth rate. And, uh, and, uh, I think we, we, we have that. So we're a good rock band basically <laughs> that makes graphic novels and, uh, and so, uh, so I took Marcus's, um, you know, outline or treatment, and I, and as he said, I cre- I broke it down into scenes because, uh, as a maker of graphic novels, as the artist, you you really want. Each seemed to be very specific, so I put in, you know, essentially stage directions for for myself to help uh, uh, flesh out the drawing process. But you 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 know, the drawing is so intensive that you need all of these other things in place. Um, and uh, and so, obviously, I consulted Marcus's book, Villains of All Nations, in great detail to add as much into the um, the story and the art as i could but i also had to do um independent research in in terms of how did people look in the 18th mm-hmm. century uh mm-hmm. how did they uh what kind of coats did they have what kind of shoes what kind of hats what kind of pipes did they smoke what kind of uh songs did they sing how did they dance and and you have to do this from the ruling uh from the working class to the ruling class mm-hmm. so it's quite intensive and remember there are no photographs, there are no movies, uh, no films of that time. you have to rely on whatever exists in terms of painting which often is was done for the ruling classes and um, and sketches and drawings that you can come across and you have to use a certain amount of creativity as well in in imagining a time and so that goes into the process of making the book and also I w- would add that when I finished the script I did um, act it out. With my partner Wendy, and that was very instructive to play all these different parts and see how they sounded when you spoke them, mm. and uh, and so that that affected it as well. And we went back and forth with many drafts of the script over a period of perhaps three months until we were finally, you know, fine with how how it went. And even in the process of creating a graphic novel, things change; they shift because you may think you wrote it in a certain way and it's going to work, but when you come to visualize it on the page it uh it may not work and you have to modify at that at that point maybe modify the text or modify what the intention was there so it does shift at times despite being you know nailed down in terms of a script um so that was the basic process of how how we how we work together
2: and i and i love these um these scenes I and mean, especially like the, the, the battle scenes are very exciting with the these big sloshes of 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 ink across the stage and it um, I think it, maybe I said this last time, but it reminds me of um, so Ralph Steadman, the uh, Hunter S. Yeah. Thompson's illustrator, it, 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 with that the spilling of the ink, and and um, I mean it just it, it creates these pages that are just um, are just really exciting and gripping. And there's these other pages where you you start to present some of the detail, like there's a there's a little aside for social history where mm. you're you're showing um, I think it's they they meet another pirate ship, and so they start engaging in trade. And it shows some of the tools that they want to get in the medical devices. And I, you know, I spent a good 20 minutes like staring at those medical devices and and trying to uh, just
3: (laughs) well I I, I wanted to know what what would they be trading? What would they what would you need in the early 18th century if you were on a pirate ship? So what uh because I don't think I didn't know and I don't think most people would know what you Mm -hmm. would need to keep the ship going, to fix the masts and um to uh uh, fix the sails and and uh, what medical things you might need and what kind of food you would need. So yeah. I did spend a lot of time in great detail drawing that. Um, so the reader would get a sense, a really, uh, again, a visceral sense of what are we talking about? You know, so you take away from all the action, but you go to the, the mundane nature. What do we, how do we operate this ship and what do we need and, and uh, how does trade work? And so, so that was part of it. And I find that, um, you know, like I, I tell the listeners that the book is done in glorious black and white, yeah. and I I, <laughs> I I think of it as film noir meets the 18th century because mm-hmm. I use a lot of shadows, a lot of dark, and uh, uh, and I feel that black and white works really well in conveying uh, to the reader uh, of taking them back in time to the 18th century, uh, rather than the use of heavy color and and gloss, which I think would would distance a reader from the the content and i feel like in the work i've done in graphic novels a lot of it has been to tell gritty social justice Mm -hmm. history Mm -hmm. and for that i find that i need to have a gritty style of drawing and uh, i feel that that matches the content or or at least tries to um meet that content that gritty um action of rebellion of of uh, the messiness of it all and so i like to have paint splattered all, all over the place at times and and so uh so that's a lot of fun to do uh, as, a, as a as an artist, uh, but also I think it does give a sense of motion to the book, and that's part of it too. And I've used some filmic techniques, uh, as people would cut up celluloid um, when they used to use celluloid to make films. Well, I cut up drawings occasionally to try to um, space them out on the on the page as a way to slow the reader down, so they have to look at the drawing not once, but uh, you know, three to- three different parts of the drawing to put the drawing together. And so I feel like that's, you know, you use every method you can to, uh, but I feel that's a kind of a filmic method. And uh, um, so that was... Um, and and actually, you mentioned the excitement of the the action scenes, but one of the most difficult things is to to do the non-action scenes where where people are deciding to vote on whether they want a democracy on on the ship, and they're voting for who will be captain and who will will. That, uh, one, that, the, you, that came off as super exciting. I did it.
2: Yeah, I thought I thought that scene in particular, you did a really great job. you are voting on the captain, and and then the trial. You have a uh, yeah a, mm-hmm. they when the, with the thumbs up and thumbs down. And I, I, I thought that, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was very cinematic.
3: Well, good. Because that's, because I felt like that's always in, in political art, that's often the most difficult thing to do is to, to depict ideas or, or the, the details of, of, uh, of discussions which often is the lot of a lot of politics so the rebellion and action and fighting is one part of it but there's also the intellectual side of it that that has to go hand in hand with it and that's where I often feel people you know don't succeed at um you know and I I certainly was influenced by you know watching films by Ken Loesch and I think he does that very well mm. in making um you know the discussions among people and making uh trying to you know make their lives better uh that that he does a very good job at making that uh um exciting as well so 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 that's good yeah. <laughs> thanks great and, and you know and I, would, like, I,
1: would, yeah. I would just add my to what mm-hmm. david said that we were really striving because this is history from below we were really striving for social realism and that social realism lies in all of the details what the ship looked like uh, what those trade items looked like uh but it also resides in the language. So we did use some 18th century speech, uh, not so much as to make uh, the, the book difficult to read for modern readers, but to just give it that social flavor that you really are dealing with a different world. Uh, and we wanted to evoke that in as many different ways as we could.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, and it comes with a glossary in the beginning for uh for all the all the tars so we can understand what they're saying, right? Um <laughs> no, and I, I I another thing I really appreciated was um having spent a lot of time on boats um was the uh the bugs and the, the cockroaches <laughs> and the lice and the um and that just reminds me of like having spent a week or two on a boat in the tropics and and just that, yes, that grittiness of life below decks. And um, um, I my, my, we grew up on boats, and and my dad would always, uh, you know, if there was a square rigger or something, we'd always have to go do a tour of that and see below. And he and he'd always say, "Just imagine, you know, you know, you think about our boat and how how clean we try to keep it, but like think about the 18th century and just, what an impossible task it would have been just to have a level of hygiene that we could even even comprehend." So anyway, the the little bugs and all that, I, I I found that really delightful.
3: Well, I wanted to give again the reader a, a visceral sense of of life on the ship by having. Yeah. Uh, you know, the weevils and the uh, cockroaches crawl up the page and and, uh, uh, you know, and have the rats uh, very much visible. And and so that so give them an idea of just exactly what you're talking about, um, uh, because it isn't all pristine and it would have been, you know, the weevils are in your food. And 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 this is a part of what they were, um, you know, rebelling against and fighting for uh, the the decrepit nature of of life on a regular merchant ship and uh and how they were treated in terms of basic items like food so it was important to show the weevils and to to show the cockroaches and and uh and so uh uh that was intentional yes <laughs> yeah, you know, this
2: is this is real social history right <laughs> um, you know, yeah I, when,
3: when i when i teach the history of cotton
2: um and using sven beckert's really fantastic book empire of cotton one of the things to talk about is you know what what is what what is wearing a garment like before cotton is common? And, yeah. you know, it's these wool, the wool garments that they wore in Northwestern Europe weren't, you know, beautiful things from Benetton or Banana Republic. Um, you know, the itchiness and what, you know, these aspects of daily life that are much more tactile and and I think really important to understand for getting into, into other eras. But um, Marcus, can we circle back a little bit um, uh, to... the history of piracy and um, what are some of the things people get wrong about pirates? Some of the things we think we know, but maybe um, we don't know, or we, we, we misunderstand. Um, In other words, how is, how is your work both um, under the banner of King death and um, villains of all nations been a corrective to sort of conventional wisdom
1: about piracy? Well, I think the biggest thing that people need to know is that uh, pirates were real people. As opposed to cartoonish stereotypes. Uh, and you see that in Pirates of the Caribbean. They're people with bad hair and bad teeth. And, you know, they're just all these stock uh, stereotypes of working class people. Well, I started my research all those many years ago by asking some really simple questions uh, about these pirates. Who were they? Answer to that question they were common, ordinary, common exploited sailors who were sick of it, sick of their daily working lives on board these ships and the Navy and the merchant shipping industry. But then I wanted to say, how did they understand piracy? What did it mean to them? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and then relatedly, finally, uh, why did they do it? And once you start asking those kind of questions, rather than simply assume that there are a bunch of violent thugs who are just all about greed, then you end up with some very different historical questions about how they organize their ships. Well, they did it in very democratic ways. We've talked earlier about the election of captains and officers. How did they divide up their loot? They did it in very egalitarian ways. Uh, the the distance between the poorest sailor on a pirate ship and the captain was very narrow, unlike on all those other ships. So the, the, the sheer organization of the pirate ship demonstrated to me how the vision of these common sailors uh, was about a better world, a better social world, a fairer, more just world. So if we can convey that uh, through this uh, graphic novel, I'd be very happy. But but Mike, let me just um, help you with one question. In a previous conversation David and I had, he talked about the punk rock aesthetic of our book, and I'd like to hear him say more about that.
3: Yeah, I like to um, think of the art that I create as uh, 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 the, the ringing of a distorted punk rock chord. And so when I play, I use a lot of distortion on my guitar, and and my favorite part is to let the chord ring and it splinters out into the into uh into the room or into the into wherever you're playing into the club or whatever and i think of that very much um taking a punk rock approach to making a graphic novel where the um the ink splatters from one page to the next and to the next and we have full bleeds on the on these pages um which is great to have that option and so um there, there is a sense of continuity over the course uh, of a of a hundred and thirty six page book that the uh, the 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 ink rolls from one page to the other, and I think of it very much in, um, in the way sound waves travel, and uh, and so that's always in the back of my mind as to how the whole thing flows together. As a book and i really almost think of it as a as a book as a giant mural if you could have it to be <laughs> you know that large um because to me they're all every page is is connected and that's the way i draw the way i design the pages and uh and uh so that's um part of the part of the process that is is always is always there is the sensibilities that i i i took to in my band mechanormal with Gene Smith, that that uh, the same aesthetic decisions one makes in making an art form like music and lyrics is the same one I take with graphic design, and the same with uh, making a graphic novel and and, and illustrations. So uh, so I feel that they're again they're they're all connected. There's a thread there if you live your life as, as a, as an artist or a musician, um, rather than these are individual silos of uh, that are divorced from each other. For me, in my case, in other people's case, it may be that way, but for my case, in my case, they're, they are all related and the same sensibilities remain.
2: Well, I mean, with this book, I really feel that, that, that musical sense, but even more so in um, Benjamin Lay, which, you know, is ironically a book about, uh, about a Quaker and, one thinks of you know sitting in quiet but the the color and the um the composition is remember like it it it's it's almost like some of the pages are screaming um like for for justice and in raging against uh uh against social injustices so that that I want I'm going to go back and reread that uh, this afternoon um with that um that idea of looking for the the sound waves that's fantastic
3: yeah well i mean with with benjamin lay i mean he was actually screaming that which went again against i think a lot of quaker principles at the time by speaking out in the way that he did and i really wanted to have have his voice be that kind of that huge that hugeness in a sense um and uh and so that was very important there was a lot of um dynamic played there with in terms of of visuals in terms of the height of how visuals were uh which related to his height and the social dynamic of, of the time uh that he was he was uh doing his activism and his his uh radical uh approach against slavery and uh and so again the the presentation of of the work as an artist i feel it has to be related to the content there has there has to be a, a connection and uh for me that's important maybe for other artists not so much but but that's always something that is in the back of my mind again
2: yeah it makes me think of um it katie edwards book red rosa where yep. she she really ties image into um into rosa luxembourg's life and i give some examples of graphic histories that don't do that as well. There's there's one on Hannah Arendt that is just caricatures of German philosophers with lots of speech bubbles, and it's like no no like so many missed opportunities. Um, so I, yeah, I think both of these books uh, you did you know fantastic job in that regard. Um, just a, a little more on on pirates, um, Marcus. Um, what what is what is your research in this book can, can tell us about gender and piracy? I mean, you have this this character um, uh, Mark and Mary. That um, um, what
1: what what what's what's the gendered history of piracy that um, that we should know? Well, it's a it's a, a well known fact that the 18th century shail- sailing ship was a hyper masculine work environment. Uh, not only because uh, it was almost always men who worked there, but because physical prowess was a significant part of the work. So it would be easy to think that in that environment there was no place for women, and that proves not to be true. Uh, and not only not true in the case of piracy, I mean not true in the case of deep sea sailing in general, because one of the discoveries of the last 20 years or so is that there were lots of women who dressed as men and went to sea, uh, who joined armies, who joined navies. And, and moreover, they were common enough that there are a lot of popular ballads about them sung by working class people around the Atlantic, now, in the case of uh, uh, piracy, we have two uh, women pirates. One of whom is in our book, Mary Read. The other is Anne Bonnie. And not only were they, uh, you know, powerful swashbuckling types, and ever since, in every sense, they were famous in their own day. They they were very well known around the world. Uh, and so, what their stories tell me. Is that women too could find liberty under the Jolly Roger? Uh, it wasn't nearly as common, but it's certainly something that was true. And and if you understand the histories of these two women, uh, you can see how tough they were. Uh, Mary Reed had served in the armies of Continental Europe. She knew about weapons. She was physically very tough. Uh, There's a a story about her which we were not able to include in the graphic novel, but uh, she had a lover on board the pirate ship who got into a scrap with a much tougher pirate, or so Mary Reed thought. Uh, That rougher, tougher pirate challenged her lover to a duel They were going to go on shore. They never fought on board the ship. And Mary was sure that this other pirate was going to kill her lover. So what did she do? She picked a scrap with that same rough, tough pirate, challenged him to a duel one hour before the duel involving her lover, went ashore, promptly killed the man on the spot, And saved the life of her lover so this is this is mary reed i mean we are talking about a very tough savvy person who commanded a lot of respect uh in this wooden world of the ship
2: yeah and um i mean in in a a related sense i'm I'm wondering about what um uh, your research can tell us about race and and piracy and uh, um uh, slavery features prominently in, um, in uh, Under the
1: Banner of King Death. One of the most uh, important findings, Mike, of uh, Villains of All Nations is that a very large percentage of the members of pirate crews were people of African descent. And I'm, ta- not, I'm not talking about a handful. I'm talking about 20, 30, 40, 50 percent So there are a very large number of people on board these ships. Uh, And one of the big questions is, where do they come from? Well, a lot of them are escapees from the plantation system. Uh, And people have asked me, why would European pirates want to take these these African or African-American people on board? There were some pretty good reasons, Uh, not all of them ideological I mean, they were accustomed, these sailors, to working as part of the motley crew, right? So the multiracial workforce was something they were all very accustomed to. But they wanted people to join the pirate ship who would be loyal to their enterprise. And I can promise you, uh, a person who had escaped slavery on a plantation could be a very loyal member. Of the crew. And on top of that, it turns out this is another major discovery in the past 20 years or so. A lot of the Africans who were enslaved and forced on slaving vessels and carried across the Atlantic had military training back in West Africa. Mm -hmm. This is actually one of the keys to why Toussaint Louverture and his army in Haiti were able to win their independence from France. There were a lot of trained soldiers among the enslaved. So, so, so race is kind of a fascinating thing in this situation. Um, I think that's uh, very important. I mean, the main character in our book is a, is a, an escapee from uh, slavery in South Carolina. That was a very big part of the world that we are writing about.
2: Mm-hmm. And then um, you, you've touched on this previously, but what does um, what uh, piracy tell us about the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thinking in the Atlantic world?
1: Well, what it tells us is that the Enlightenment was not simply uh, a a process of middle and upper class gentlemen in the salons of Europe, uh, you know, sipping their brandy and having their enlightened thoughts, that Enlightenment happened from below, and that it happened uh, among pirates. They found ways to live together. Uh, to work together, to build something new together. There's a, you know, you could say that the pirate ship was utopian for the common sailor, but I resist that description because utopia means no place. This was a very real place. Uh, And now along comes uh, David Graeber, now passed away, I'm sorry to say, but his book, Pirate Enlightenment, adds a whole new wrinkle to this issue because he describes in that book the formation of a new uh, ethnic group in Madagascar called the Betsy Mizoraka, who basically are quite egalitarian, quite democratic in the way that they operate. And he argues, and I think shows very convincingly, that that culture is based on the principles of pirate ships. Those lots of principles settled in precisely that part uh, of Madagascar. They took Malagasy wives. So his idea is that this is a pirate enlightenment, but my attitude is it was only one of many. Mm-hmm. That's fa- that's so fascinating. And and then just as an aside,
2: I um, I, I, I think we need a better understanding of the connection to the Indian ocean world. Um, even those of us who've got some knowledge of piracy, got some knowledge of the Atlantic world regularly, you know, don't make that connection just a little, a little further and how how important that is. I mean, as a world historian and someone who works in Southeast Asia, I'm always trying to (laughs) Mm -hmm. alert my students to the significance of the Indian ocean world. Um, and I was, I was wondering Marcus, if you could say a few words about maritime history, um, and uh, you know, I, I wish that when I was in graduate school, I had, I had known this was was a field or or going to going to be a field. Um, and it seems that there's so much so much exciting work going on in maritime history right now. And I've I, I tried to work it into my master's seminars. I have. Students read a variety of things, including everything from Maya Jasanoff's book on Joseph Conrad to Eric mm-hmm. um work mm-hmm. on Maritime uh, Asia. He's got a fantastic book on um, uh, Maritime Asia that just came out. And I have my my students read um, two of the Amatif Gosh uh, novels from the Ebus trilogy, where much mm-hmm. of it is set at sea, and you you get this incredible portrait of the Lascars. And I noticed that you you have you have in um, uh, under, under uh, the banner of King Death, you have someone signed Lascar Joe, and I was like, mm-hmm. ah, <laughs> the Lascars, um, and that there's there's these cultures and these histories at sea. That don't mm-hmm. that aren't tied necessarily to one port to another, but really can only be understood at sea. Mm-hmm. So, we could you say a few words on on the state of maritime history?
1: Well, look uh, in the very long dominant tradition of national historical writing, national and nationalist. Okay, seafaring people are almost always marginal. They're they're outside the the landed nation, right? Uh, I've said that uh, history has what I call a terra-centric bias. Uh, it, we I sort of made this word up to describe the fact that almost everybody assumes that history is made on land in nation states, but of course it isn't. A lot of history happens at sea. Big historical processes happen at sea. Class formation happens at sea. Race formation happens at sea. Culture formation. I mean, you can't really even think the history of capitalism without taking the sea on board. It's, it's It's that crucial. So in my view, the rise of transnational history, the rise of Atlantic history, Indian Ocean history, oceanic history, world history has given a new, very great significance to seafaring people, because it was the labor of those people who connected the continents of the world. So they're no longer simply marginal, they're actually central to a lot of the history as we understand it. And I might just add that uh, Amitav Ghosh is a friend of mine, and we have uh, had many conversations about the Motley Crew. And this is, of course, what he writes about in that Indian Ocean context. And this is a fairly universal thing about the labor forces of the oceans of the world and also in every port city. So this is a this is a fascinating uh, historical subject and a historical subject that actually makes a lot of history.
2: Yeah. And and again, so so many exciting uh, new work, uh, new works coming out. Both of you have been really generous with your time, but I've got two two more questions for you before I let you go. These are the traditional new books debriefing questions. Um, Marcus, I'll start with you. Um, what are you working on now? And what can we hope to see from you next?
1: Well, I'm working on a new graphic novel with David Lester. And uh, this is I'm very happy about this. This will be our third. Uh, I'll say a little bit about it, and maybe David can say more, because as I understand it, um, I mean, we we did finish the script a good while ago, and he's about, did you say, David, three quarters of the way through drawing it? Yes. Uh, so anyway, this is a, a, a graphic novel about the Afro-Irish conspiracy that took place in New York City in 1741 uh, a remarkable story. It was, uh, what we're doing is based on a chapter, uh, in that book you mentioned, Mike, the many-headed Hydra, which I wrote with Peter Linebaugh. And, uh, so, so we're, we're, it's a, it's a third history from below. And I think it's a, a pretty exciting opportunity because what you see in that uprising is people of African descent, people of Irish descent, Mulatto, Cuban sailors, the motley crew of the waterfront coming together to plan an insurrection, an uprising from within the city. And uh, so so this is, uh and, and we've given a lot of emphasis in this book to how they did it, how they overcame their differences, what were the sources of solidarity among them, that sort of thing. So uh, David would be better placed than I to say more about that. Uh, the, the other thing that I'm doing right now is writing a book about um, people who escaped slavery by sea in the 19th century. This is a, a book tentatively entitled Freedom Ship as a counterpoint to the other book, Slave Ship. Uh, and the idea is that, well, our visions of the Underground Railroad, and that's a metaphor, that's not a fact. It was neither underground nor was it a railroad. Our images of that are that it uh, that escaping slavery was entirely by land, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to to prove that if we look at those people who successfully got away, the ones who left slavery once and for all, a majority of them did it by sea, and so these ships that sail into southern harbors, uh, Savannah, Charleston, uh, Norfolk. Baltimore these are almost all northern ships with motley crews including quite a few black sailors who were very sympathetic to those people who wanted to escape slavery so so that's the book that I'm writing right now well I look, I look forward to that uh David
3: uh well as Marcus said I'm working <laughs> on our our next graphic novel and uh and my process of making a graphic novel again is to I first draw everything in pencil and uh and and uh, so I'm three quarters of the way through drawing those pencils, sketches, and then I will ink the pencils um, and then erase the unwanted pencil lines. And then I will paint on the drawings with watercolour to, uh, to give it that dynamic and sense of depth that watercolour can give it. And, uh, and so there's still a lot to do, but uh, I feel very happy to be at the stage that I am. And uh, and of course the the book is divided into three sections uh, uh, a large section about the planning and plotting of the uprising and so a lot of meetings a lot of dark uh, cellars and taverns and and uh, and dark nights in in the in the street on the waterfront in in the holds of ships so so it's been kind of interesting in that way very. Um, you know, it's very evocative is the sense of it. And then we go into the next section, which is the actual uprising, and then the final section is the uh the uh the imprisonment, arrests, and and trial that takes place. And uh so um it's it's uh it's a very structured piece, um, but it really is a structured piece about how rebellion takes place and uh and so anyway, that's exciting. I'm very excited about that. And I also recently got a a large um amount uh, of a of a grant from the Canada Council in Canada, which is run by the federal government. so, um, I've got this government grant to uh, do a graphic novel on the life of Emma Goldman, the last year in her life, which she lived and died in Toronto, and so uh, she would probably find that ironic to get government money to depict her revolutionary <laughs> uh, revolutionary life. And uh, well, so uh, only in Canada. Yeah. Well, only- David,
1: <laughs> David, look at it this way: it's one of the best things they could do with their money.
3: Well, I I think so. So I think they get a good deal. Um, but it, uh, it, it just, uh, it, I'm very happy to get that, that kind of financing. Um, and, uh, and it's very difficult to get it. So, so though, that, though, that's going to be occupying my time and as well, uh, who knows whether, um, the rock band of, uh, Marcus Paul and I will be, uh, doing another <laughs> book perhaps, uh, we'll see. And, uh, and, uh, that would be great too. So, um, you know, that'll be our, that would be our fourth album really we want to thank you <laughs> um so uh so that's uh that's uh oh the other thing is that's happening is is i'm um, very pleased to to report that uh uh that our our previous two books are, are being published in different uh languages in uh okay. korean and italian editions of uh prophet against slavery and under the banner of king death as well as next month there's a um uh, Verso is bringing out a British edition of "Profit Against," uh, short, sorry, British edition of "Profit Against Slavery," Benjamin Lay. Oh, fantastic! Uh, so about yeah. that as well. And as there will be play, there'll also know? also be Italian editions. Yes, Italian editions too, um, and but uh, also your play, Marcus. I'm I'm excited about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, the 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 Benjamin Lay juggernaut goes on. I, I am. <laughs> determined to do everything I can to make Benjamin Lay uh, a part of our contemporary political life. So having written a scholarly book, having written with David the graphic novel, um, I've actually worked with people to compose a song or two, uh, and now with uh, my friend, the very uh, distinguished playwright Naomi Wallace. We have a play called the return of benjamin lay which will have its uh world premiere in london uh, in june so so that's taken up quite a bit of my time these days so uh yeah so onward and upward with benjamin lay fantastic um
2: david uh last question can you suggest two books for the audience
3: um yes i um can uh there's a there's been an uh, important graphic history of the uh that details the forced evictions and imprisonment of japanese americans Mm. during the second world war and it's called we hereby refuse japanese american resistance to wartime incarceration uh by frank Abbey and tamiko namura and uh and so it focuses on the west coast of america but in uh in uh, canada we did the same thing during the second world war we confiscated uh boats and, uh, and uh uh houses and uh, and and forced uh, japanese canadians into into essentially uh prisons uh for the course of the war and uh and not far from where i live is uh is a uh, is a uh, grounds where there are barns which usually housed uh uh cows and uh pigs and stuff like that and that's where they japanese Canadians were originally housed so it's really all of course a despicable on both sides of the border and uh and uh, we do have a plaque there finally after about 50 years they gave a put a plaque there to to acknowledge this injustice and uh and so anyway it's a very it's a very good book uh we hereby refuse it's called and mm-hmm. the other one is save it for later promises protest and parenthood by Nate Powell and it details um uh uh, it's kind of a memoir of of uh, the artist and his family uh, during this dark time in American history after uh, Trump was elected, and so um, it's is a very defiant book, but it's also a hopeful one, and uh, and of course it's beautifully drawn. And uh, so those are my two picks.
1: Great, great, and Marcus. Two books? Well, I must tell you that um, the great historian E.P. Thompson has been on my mind because just yesterday, a colleague in the UK sent me a video uh, of an interview that she did with Edward. This is a historian, Penelope Corfield, uh, with Edward uh, just a few months before he died in 1993. Uh, and it's a, it's a very powerful interview, although he's clearly in failing health. So I would recommend to people that they read um, not one, but two classic works of history from below. Uh, The first is Thompson's uh, The Making of the English Working Class, uh, published in 1963. And he actually tells a funny story about that book in this video. He says that he was working uh, in adult education, in Yorkshire, and some publisher offered him 50 pounds to write a history of the British working class from 1800 to 1945. And Edward said, well, The Making of the English Working Class, which, by the way, is 832 pages long, (laughs) is the first chapter in that history. Uh, (laughs) That's great. And then the other book is... uh, Another classic uh, by C.L.R. James called Black Jacobins, which is, I think, one of the very best books ever written about revolution, mm-hmm. uh, about Toussaint-L'Ouverture and the uprising in Haiti, uh, then called Saint-Domingue, began in 1791, uh, finally completed in 1804. Uh, not only were the French imperialists evicted uh, Toussaint and his army of formerly enslaved people fought off Great Britain and Spain to become the second new nation in the Western Hemisphere, the first having been the United States.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, so I'm happy to recommend Thompson and James because those two historians were really instrumental in the way that I see the past. Uh, I learned so much from them and uh, I do think your your listeners would enjoy reading these two works.
2: And, and your collaborator, Paul Buell, is a biographer of CLR James.
1: Yes, he is. He yep. was uh, actually, Paul deserves credit for having done a great deal to introduce CLR James to American readers. Uh, people forget how little known James was outside of uh, left wing political circles. But uh, Paul wrote the authorized biography with the cooperation of James and his friends and family.
2: Great. Well, David Lester, Marcus Redeker, thank you so much for uh, for your time and for chatting with me today.
1: Thank, thank you. Great. A lot of fun. Thank you.
2: So this has been a conversation with David Lester and Marcus Rediker about Under the Banner of King Death, Pirates of the Atlantic, a graphic novel, out with Beacon Press in 2023. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.